Welcome to another Archive episode. As the days turn chillier and the nights draw in, it's essential to keep moving. For some scientific inspiration, we spoke to Dr Caroline Williams, author of Move. We'll be back at the end of autumn with new episodes and new offers, especially for our patrons, including regular giveaways of some of our favourite non-fiction reads. Back us now on Patreon to have a chance of winning. And assuming you're a bit keen on books, then please can we recommend our newest supporters, the fine folk at All Good Bookshop. The shop is host to writers' groups, readings, yoga, comedy nights, music, and also has a pretty banging selection of books. You can order by phone, email, or even direct message, and the people there are very friendly. See allgoodbookshop.co.uk for details. Now, back to Dr Williams. Are you listening to this while yomping through a park? Or are you currently cosily curled up with a cuppa? I know lockdown and the depths of winter have made the latter far more appealing. Unless you have a boisterous dog or willpower of steel, it can be tempting to give in to winter torpor, even though we know our bodies need to move. But it's not just our bodies that crave movement. When we get our heart rates up, we change our brains too. And while we've known for years that exercise helps stave off heart disease and cancer, it also protects us against depression and dementia. In fact, it's often said that if exercise were a pill, it would be one of the most successful medicines on the market. To talk about the science of movement and its impact on our minds, today's guest is Caroline Williams. Welcome to Nonfic Pod, your home for fiction, non-fiction. has this thesis that we're cognitively engaged athletes and I have to admit that some days I feel neither cognitively engaged or athletic but do you ever find that that when you're blocked sometimes just physically moving can get things moving? Absolutely and often with story ideas or problems with narratives or flow I do find that getting up and walking does that I don't know I'm really interested to hear what you guys talk about in this do you do you talk about the relation between movement and writing we do actually we talk about the fact that as uh, our brachiating ancestors brachiating is a good word coming right up uh, were swinging through the trees the same parts of their brain that we used to plan getting through the trees without coming a cropper are still used for our kinds of cognitive planning now which was an absolute revelation to me you know despite the stuff I do already know about how the brain works this intimate relationship between movement and cognition was absolutely fascinating so let's crack on and hear from Caroline Caroline Williams was going to be a PE teacher before being seduced by neuroscience. She spent several years researching the connection between movement and the mind. As a science writer and broadcaster, she says that her aim is to learn new and exciting things and share them in the most entertaining way she can think of. And Move, which comes out in April, definitely fits that bill. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you for having me. There's a tendency to think of the brain and body as distinct and that the body mainly exists to move the brain around. But you make a really compelling case that the brain mainly exists to move the body around. What was it that persuaded you that that's the case? 
I came across the work of a Colombian neuroscientist called Rodolfo Linas. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his, his name, but that's how it's spelled. And he made the case that uh, through the example of a sea squirt. These are really interesting little animals because when they are in their sort of tadpole juvenile form, they have very basic nervous system and a sort of a ganglion, which is like brain. And it uses this to sort of swim around the ocean, trying to find somewhere good to settle because they want to find somewhere to attach, to glue themselves essentially by their heads and then spend the rest of their life sort of filter feeding in this idyllic sounding life. But the first thing they do when they have found this spot to live the rest of their lives is to digest their entire nervous system and they never make a decision about anything ever again. And so Linas made this example, he used this to say, well, the only point of having a brain is so that you can inform your movements in the world because the world is a dangerous place and you might get eaten and you want to choose the best place where you have the best chance of survival. So that's why you need a brain, that's why you need senses, that's why you need to bring this stuff together to make decisions about what you're going to do with your life. But as soon as this little sea squirt attached and is never going to move again, you don't need a brain and brains take a lot of energy to run. So the whole thing just gets reabsorbed and no need anymore. So he used this as an example of evolutionarily speaking, the whole point of a brain is to inform our movements in the world, to enhance our survival or to get to places where there are rewards to be had. And in terms of the rewards of feeling bright and breezy in the brain, boosting our cognition. What's better for us? Is it an hour in the gym or a good brisk walk, climbing a tree or lifting weights? If only there was like a one weird trick sort of answer to say, right, this is what you need to do. Forget all the rest of it. There are different benefits from lots of things. I think going back to the cliche of what are what our bodies evolved to do, they evolved to move against gravity. So anything that involves getting up, moving against gravity, because that stimulates your bones, your muscles, increases strength. There's this really weird stuff that happens when you move against gravity. Your bones release a hormone called osteocalcin, which talks directly to the brain and and increases uh, improved memory and it just keeps you alert. So there are all these good reasons why getting up and moving are good. Having physical strength has been quite clearly linked to self-esteem, to confidence, to feeling capable in general in life. And so there isn't really one way to do it, but as long as you're sort of hitting the, so in the, in the book I talk about, you know, these, these buttons that you should hit. So synchronized movement is really important for feeling bonded to other people and tackling loneliness. Strength is important for self-esteem. Core strength is linked to the stress control system. Moving forward helps you feel like you're getting somewhere. So there's, there's all kinds of different ways that moving can affect the way you think and the way you feel but there isn't one thing we should all be doing but I think mindlessly pumping weights yeah it improves your strength but I don't think it hits enough of the buttons to make me personally want to go and do it I'd much rather go for a nice long walk and throw some sticks or jump off some logs or something but that's just me personally. The book talks about various forms of movement and the ways that as you just outlined have these various impacts not just on the body but on our cognition on our mood on our self-esteem. I was really thrilled with the chapter where you make the the point that dancing is very compelling because of our search for meaning in patterns. Uh, what is it about dancing and music that makes us feel so compelled to move? Yeah, dancing is fascinating. And once I started off down that road, there were so many ways in which it's key to what makes us the creatures that we are. You know, no other animal makes music and dances to it. Why is that? There's this great essay by Tekken So Fitch. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right either. Um, but the title of the essay is Why Don't Dogs Dance? They've been evolving with us for 10,000 years. Why haven't they picked up on this idea that, hey, music makes you want to move? And there is something very, very human about it. And so part of it comes down to the way that our bodies and our 
brains sort of work together. So our brains work out where our body is in space and synchronize our movements with the information that's coming in through our senses. So when we move, especially when we're moving with other people, there's research that suggests that our concept of where our body begins and ends and where the other person begins and ends start to get melded together because the information that's coming in from our senses is, well, we're moving like this and they're moving like this and we're doing it at the same time. We are sort of one and the same, which I think is a really lovely idea. You know, you can imagine people who don't get on at all, who have nothing in common, dancing together and and suddenly you, you feel like you're both human in this world together which is a really nice thing yeah, the power of synchronicity reminded me of the rubber hand illusion which you may have come across the idea that if you stroke someone's arm and a rubber simulacrum of their arm at the same time and then go to hit the rubber arm they they, <laughs> they will get very upset this idea that you have absorbed by the fact that something's happening at the same time with the same rhythm uh, is enough for you to extend your your sense of self to include that rubber arm the idea that it also extends to include the people that you're dancing with i found very very exciting and i mean if this even happens in babies they've done studies with one-year-olds where researchers have bounced them on their knee either sort of in time to the music or out of the time to the music and the the little toddlers will be more likely to help the person who was bouncing them if they bounce them in time it's just like we, we it makes us cooperate it makes us feel as one it's so adorable i've written about toddlers before and they're actually not selfish horrible monsters um, they're actually very helpful you know you drop something a toddler will immediately go and help pick it up Um, and so that cooperation is enhanced if we move together in time yes yeah and when it comes to the other end of our life when we're trying to stop our brains degrading and and becoming sort of sea slug like movement is very good at helping prevent aging in the brain as well as the body what is it that's going on there yeah it's it's really fascinating so you've got all these you know there are lots of things that are linked with reducing your chances of dementia you know like having having social connections, good diet but but exercise is a really important part of that and moving your body is a really important part of that and part of that comes down to so there's studies going on at the moment with this hormone osteocalcin that's released from the bones during exercise and we know that that does decline with age so it's almost bad news in a way that you have to do more to get the same effect so i think the more weight bearing exercise you can do um, especially in middle age this seems to be a very important time to to actually keep this stuff going um it's just from the time you're most busy and most exhausted that's when you should be also getting more stuff but also with regards to exercise in the brain it does all kinds of great stuff to your physiology it gets um hormones released that then make more connections happen in your brain it, it enhances blood flow to the brain all the things that the brain needs to function happen better when you're on the move because when what your body is doing when your body is moving it tells your brain stuff's happening you know we are cognitively engaged athletes as one scientist puts it you need to do the moving bit to make the cognitive bit work so the more you can do basically the better yeah when having read that i'm now having in the midst of homeschool you know a sort of five minute dance party with the the four-year-old and the six-year-old or throwing them up in the air this part of me going this is not just good for our mood i'm also staving my inevitable yeah. saving off my inevitable cognitive decline um i'm not sure it's working yet but that could just be like, no, it's, it's hard to tell in the moment isn't it like right let's all go out and bounce <laughs> on a trampoline quick it'll make us feel better but yeah yeah you mentioned in the book about the the slumping posture or what i think the the neuroscientist involved called it a 
like a contractive posture and how that then tends to do things like slow cognition and depressed mood and I'm thinking because of everyone being on top of each other during lockdown a lot of us have been doing quite a bit of work from the bed yeah and I don't feel like Marcel Proust working from the bed I feel like I I feel like a sea squirt is there something about you know this lockdown syndrome that some of it is literally just that we're not sitting up at a desk or striding over to go and collar someone in the office is there something about this return to mollusk-like state that is possibly doing something to our mood and to our cognition yeah, I mean, I guess there's also the fact that nobody's watching most of the time when Lester on a Zoom, on a Zoom call. You know, you can just sort of flop around and go, oh, this is rubbish. I can't be bothered. You know, you don't have to have this professional facade that you're up and typing and you know you know what you're doing although on the other hand you know I've been a freelancer for a really long time and working at home and it is in some ways freeing because you can you know I'm constantly fidgeting around in my chair I've got my legs crossed now because I'm only four foot eleven and my feet don't touch the floor it means you, you do have the freedom to move around so sometimes I will sort of sit on the floor and type sometimes stand up and it also offers a freedom to say well stuff says I'm going for a walk to kind of get you back into that feeling a bit more alert so it's a double-edged sword really this whole being at home down because it can really weigh heavy and you can sit in bed if you want to but yes as a long-term home worker I can say the most important thing is get out your pjs and pretend it's a proper job (laughs) (laughs) I remember someone giving me that advice when I first moved to full-time freelancing make sure you get out of the house at least once a day and yeah, yeah, in terms of mood and cognition, it does make a difference. Yeah, I have That's a very hyperactive dog who insists, you know, he basically mentally tortures me, tortures me unless I take him out twice a day. And, you know, when I first started freelancing, I also had a dog back way in the days in my sort of 20s. And yeah, it, otherwise, because I was at the time working in my bedroom, I had a desk in my room. And the only way to make separation between the bed and the desk was to walk with the dog, come back, make a cup of tea, sit down, and um, and then you can mentally separate it. But I'm sure that the walk and the moving forward thing, that was one of the things I found really interesting with the, with the walking chapter, that there's psychology studies that, that are about as you move forward through space, that gives you sort of a sort of a mental sense of progress as well. So it's not just that you're literally getting somewhere, but you feel like you're getting somewhere as well. And that allows you to stop dwelling on the past. Um, you know, it's much easier to ruminate and get down in lumps when you're sitting still and staring at your screen and going, ah, I need to write 500 words today. Ah, but it's much better just to get out, get walking. And suddenly you find your brain, you start thinking about the future and you come up with ideas that you've never thought of. And I spent a lot of time walking the dog with my phone out, typing up ideas in my notes and then reading them when I get home and going, oh yeah, that's what I that's what I thought. So yes, getting up, getting out is definitely the way forward. I, I found the line that you drew between uh, our ancestors that learnt to brachiate, am I saying that right? But swinging through the trees by, by their arms and needing to be aware of the range of possibilities in front of them, you know, which branch will support my weight, which one gets me closer to where I need to be. And that idea that we are cognitively engaged athletes because of this need to navigate in three dimensions yeah it's fascinating isn't it that's kind of a, a fairly new idea that the you know the part of the brain that was once thought just to do movements it also does thinking planning emotional control all these sort of things so it's a bit of the brain that looks like it's dangling off the bottom if you look at a diagram a little sort of cauliflower type thing but it's got these hyper fast connections all over the brain and it just sort of fine tunes our behavior and our movements and so there's something about moving planning thinking um feeling are all kind of woven together so yeah if we we sit around trying to do the thinking and the feeling and the planning bit without the movement then we're you know it's not I'm not saying it can't be done clearly it can but but we're missing a trick you know we're, we're selling ourselves short a little bit 
And you'd mentioned as well the fact that it's not just cognitively that movement helps us, that you talk to a few people in your book that are using movement as essentially as therapy. And my co-host Georgie talks about diving as a, a means of dealing with anxiety and PTSD and so on. When it comes to, I know myself as someone who suffered from depression, getting out of bed can be the hardest thing possible. But there is good evidence, isn't there, that movement of, of many sorts is actually very helpful from an emotional point of view yeah I mean it's it's kind of almost a cruel trick of depression that it makes you want to hide under the duvet and just like leave me alone I don't want to move but actually that's a thing that could help so there, there was one study I came across that I thought was quite interesting that one sign that medication for depression was kicking in with voluntary movement became like, easier I guess it, it increased voluntary movement so anything that can get you going I mean I spoke to Marcus Scottney who's a an extreme ultra marathon runner who suffered from depression his whole life and somehow he's managed to run and do two-day mountain marathons and he you know he says going forward shows me that I can go forward yeah I mean the hard bit is kicking yourself into action in the first place and I don't have an easy answer for that I wish I did but um yeah movement definitely definitely helps so whether it's somebody who has suffered depression before and doesn't want to go back there then you know as a preventative measure that it can definitely help you can follow Caroline on Twitter at at science Caroline and at carolinewilliams.net her new book move is available to pre-order now and comes out on April the 15th Hey, you lucky things, you're listening to the patrons-only special cut of the non-fic pod. This is the Shit I Wish I'd Known edit with special insider details. It's our way of saying thank you so much for your incredibly valuable support. If you want to hear more from Caroline about researching rabbit holes, finding cheerleaders and having a boisterous dog, stay tuned. The question that I always like to ask people, because I figure I spend probably 60% of my time doing research, 20%, no, 10% of my time writing and maybe 30% editing, is how do you approach research? Do you have an idea of the overall story of the book and then just look for things to fill the gaps? Or are you the kind of person who has read all of the things, maybe for your other freelancing, and then it's like, oh, I can sculpt a really good story out of this. Are you a, are you a get all of the clay on the wheel and then sculpt it? Or are you a, I need to fill in this little detail here or a mix I think a bit of a mix of the two I'm a I mean I'm a bit of an over researcher so I think partly because I'm you know I'm quite an anxious soul it terrifies me the idea of writing something and it being incorrect and so I'll write a sentence that I think you know based on what I've read is reasonable and I'll think well what if that's wrong and then I'll just spend the day (laughs) digging around to make sure that that statement is correct so I definitely read too much I do I don't know whether it's too much, actually, because I think in the end of the day, I feel happy that I know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I can definitely go down research rabbit holes. Um, but that's when you find the gems, right? You know, that's when you find the things that you didn't know were there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I start off with it. I guess the ideas come from lots of things I've written or heard about or people I've spoken to, and they kind of gradually coalesce. And then it's a case of getting into the nitty gritty and, and making sure that it all stands up, which is the you know, the process of writing the proposal, which I find terrifying because you're basically selling something you haven't done yet and you think is going to work, but you don't know it's going to work, but you have to sound like you know it's going to work. Yeah, that's the yeah. scary bit. <laughs> and then they say yes, and you think, oh, right, oh so I've got to write God, the thing you, now. You yeah. were speaking to the absolute <laughs> of me who is someone uh, who is... Uh, 
I think possibly same as you right in the middle of proofing one while proposing another. The, the, the gap between what I would like it to be and what it ends up being is always quite stark. And the idea yeah. that somebody may come back to you and say, but you said you were going to do this. Oh, well, it turns out that person wouldn't speak to me and they thought I was talking rubbish or, you know, it's just that it's that that terror of trying to make something happen that you can't hand on heart say it's going to what it's going to be until you've done it. Um, luckily, I think this one's turned out all right. But, you know, there's always that total fear as you're going through that something's going to fall apart. Yeah, fall apart I think lab hand. training helped me with that. The idea that you're going to do this experiment in order to explore this thing and then... It turns out, you know, that your reagent had gone off or just so many things can go wrong. And and I love the myth of how scientific papers are written, which is that, you know, we decided we were going to test X. And so we came up with experiment Y and we got data Z. And thus we know this, um, the view of, of lab research as a journey from A to B rather than the, the multiple moments of going, oh, God, I yeah. didn't expect that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what? writing about research is almost exactly the same. You start with this proposal that is very much like setting up your hypothesis and your experiments. And, and then at the end, you have found out something. It was not necessarily the thing that I intended to find out at the beginning. I, I definitely had that moment. But it, it usually ends up fascinating and move certainly is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, a colleague of mine did say once, work is never wasted. You know, when you're researching, if, even if you don't find out what you thought you were going to find out, you're going to find out something interesting that will be of use to you. If not right now, it'll be of use to you. It'll come back to you later. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind when you're going down. That is wonderful. I think I'm <laughs> going to stick that over my desk. Work is never wasted. And speaking of work, I mean, you've participated in a lot of the research here. You've been to an awful lot of outdoor fitness activities in the, uh, in the process of writing the book. Uh, what do you like about getting in the thick of it? Well, I think it's just getting out there and meeting people. I mean, I, I love the sort of the solitary nature of writing. And, you know, in lockdown, it took me a while to get used to the fact I've got a husband and a son knocking around the house as well. You know, I like having that that mental space just to be in my own head. But it can get lonely sometimes. And also, you know, it's easy to doubt yourself and what you're thinking. You know, I was like, I know that movement is good, but I need to get out there and meet some people. And so much as I, I love meeting scientists and they're fascinating, wall-to-wall, lovely people. I've never met one I don't like. This book was great because I always also got to meet people who didn't know anything about the science but they were putting this stuff into into practice in real life and helping people and they were just genuinely such nice passionate enthusiastic people and it was great to get out there and doing stuff like the move night course where I crawled around Hackney Park was just ridiculous and hilarious and, and I had a brilliant brilliant time it's just fun to get out there meet people and, and do something different that doesn't involve sitting and tapping and thinking oh I should go for a walk soon it's a lot of fun <laughs> as well it's really good fun to, to read what are your essential tools when you're planning a project my dog long walks lots and lots of tea um i don't know really just sort of there's a lot of faffing and procrastinating goes on as well you know people people have said to me so how long does it take to write a book then i'm like oh well it depends where you start the process you know if you start the dithering there was that yoga retreat i went went on about three years ago when i sat and read a book and started planning the proposal and yeah, that was several years ago, but I didn't actually start it until last year. So I think there's a lot of faffing around. I'm never sure whether that is part of the creative process and it's necessary or whether it's just annoying and I should just cut that out and just get on with some work. But yeah, I don't really know. I think, yeah, just interest, tea, dog walks <laughs> um, and desperately needing to... 
for me, it's, it's understanding why we are the way we are um, and why we do the things we do. I kind of find people fascinating. So um, that's what drives me, I think, to try and explain. And when it comes our, to keeping track of the outline of the book, the, the way the argument's going, the ever-growing pile of research, are you the kind of person who, you know, has a citation manager and umpteen spreadsheets? Uh, are you able to keep a lot of that in your head? Do you just get it all down on the page as you're going? How do you how do you cope with wrangling research? Um, so I, I, I print a lot of stuff out because then I know where it is and I can point at it and highlight it and colour it in and write all over it. Um, so I do a lot of that. I also, as I go along, I make sure I've learned this through bitter experience. If there's a paper that makes your point, put the link into where you're writing because when editor comes and says, are you sure? That doesn't sound right. You say, yes, it's definitely in this paper and you can know where to look. So I'm quite careful to make sure I don't lose references. My office is quite tidy now because it's a Monday, but there usually are piles of paper around and folders upon folders upon folders with stuff I've printed out because then I know it like I can definitely put my, my hand on it but I don't have a spreadsheet no I, I kind of feel like I should have a spreadsheet I have paper piles for, for, for formatting my citations but I do tend to re uh, refer to the research period of my writing as the tree murdering phase yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, there's a lot yeah. of that. <laughs> but then you've got the problem of what to do with it all as well afterwards, because yeah. I've got from my previous book, I've got a whole folder of stuff that I just can't bring myself to throw away because I'm like, well, it's there. And, and I know where it is yeah. if it's there. And being that I murdered my laptop, my my trusty laptop halfway through the writing process, or actually three quarters of the way through the writing process of this book, I'm really scared that I'm going to lose stuff off my computer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that wasn't fun. No. But there you go. That, that, was, that was right before lockdown. That was kind of um, just before lockdown happened. I was panicking. I did. I had 20,000 words still to write. My son was about to be off on school holidays. I was freaking out massively. And then I poured a cup of tea all over my laptop and spent a week trying to fix it and killed it. So, yeah, I don't trust that. Yeah, it was it was bad. It was very bad. But it gave me um, gave me a reason to practice my breathing and calming breathing. <laughs> what I about. But uh, yeah, but also it does mean that, you know, at least I know if I have things printed out and now saved in the cloud, then I don't have to trust this you know, piece of grey. Mm -hmm. And this is, I guess, me. as well, where the uh, the yoga retreat also comes in as a very handy tool. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, one of the, that yoga is one of the things that kind of got me started thinking about this whole movement. Because I, I kept thinking, why do I love yoga so much? You know, what, why does it make me calm and feel in control if I get off, you know, get out of my bed and do it? Why does that make me feel so? Is it the breathing? Is it the stretching? Is it the strength? Is it, you know, what is it? Is it the group movement? What is it? And, you know, I mean, I guess the answer through the whole of the book is, yeah, all of those things, all of those things are important. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, it's, sort of reinforced my my love of yoga although lockdown hasn't been great for the, for the motivation aspect of it, one of the things yeah. that i'm very aware of myself is that i never stay in love with a project all the way through do you have a favorite part of writing a book producing a book uh from from the original sort of germ of an idea during a yoga retreat through to going out and being on the the publicity trail is are there some favorite bits that you continually enjoy or does it vary from project to project um, well, I think there's always, I, I couldn't, I, I tried to look for it before I spoke to you, but there was a graph someone sent me once of the creative process. And it's very much like an, it's very much an up and down roller coaster. So there's always peaks of, oh, this is so exciting. And somebody else is interested in too. My agent is really interested in this. And all the publishers seem interested. Oh my God, this is so exciting. And then you get really enthusiastic and then you actually have to do the work. And then you go into the slump of, oh my God, I've got to make this happen now. And, and then you have the breakthroughs and then you have another slump. And so it's kind of a, 
constant roller coaster of emotions. I'm, I'm enjoying, I, I love the writing bit. I love the, I love the getting out and meeting people and, you know, feeling really excited that there's more here than, than I thought there was. Um, that's really exciting, but there are definitely lows when, you know, there's somebody else put this great thing on Twitter about writing process as well, which is there's a definitely, there's a part of the process that's called idea spaghetti. You know, you've got all your research, you know, it's all in there, but it's just all tangled up and you haven't got a narrative coming through and you don't know what to do. And that idea spaghetti is the most frustrating part of the process because you know it's there and it's going to take a lot of work to make it actually read well. And you know, at the end of that process, you're going to read that back and go, oh, that seems very, um, like you were saying about the scientific paper thing, that's going to seem very linear and obvious that it's going to be put in that order. But there's a, that process where you think, ah, I've got to untangle this and it's really hard work. That's that's one of my least favourite parts. Proofs are my other least favourite part because of the, you've, you've kind of got the emotional, wow, it's going to be a book. It looks like a book. Ah, that's amazing. With, but what if this entire chapter is wrong? I can't remove it now. It's a proof. You know, so there's there's kind of like joy and anxiety smooshed together. But yeah, I, I'm like, it's, re- it's really, now is about really exciting because it's about to come out. It's coming out in April and people are starting to be interested and ask me to talk about it on podcasts and things. And now it's kind of taking its baby steps into the world and other people are seeming to like it, which is, that's really exciting. That's really exciting. So yeah, I'm the idea this spaghetti bit. Sure. bit. I think my favourite tool for that part is post-it notes and a great big sheet of um, a really rough paper that they have at um, at kids' nurseries. Is it called poster paper or something? Sugar paper. They sugar have paper. Different one for each chapter heading or each idea of a chapter heading and then just throw post-it notes on them until they sort of stabilise. Oh, interesting. I, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a sort of spider diagram. And, and the bigger, the more to fit into it, the bigger the piece of paper has to be. So I could say, you know, quite often sit on the floor and just do this massive spider diagram and then number it one, two, three, four, and then it's so if it makes sense. And then, yeah, and then I'll finally get it written and I'll sort of, I'll do like bold sort of subheadings almost going something about this here, something about that, something about this, and then fill in the gaps. And then, um, yeah, eventually it kind of hangs together or it doesn't. And then you think, actually, that doesn't, A doesn't need to be, and I'm going to have to go back to square one start all again but that's the I mean that is the fun bit really I mean it's tedious and hard work but that's the magic of it when it's spaghetti clear yeah there is that sort of again that sense of moving forward trying to pick a path almost through the spaghetti yeah, and also this in lockdown, like like everybody, I'm a massive cliche. I've been getting into jigsaws, and I find that like when I was right up against the deadline, and we had homeschooling going on, I just found that that was it was a similar sort of process. You've got all these coloured pieces, and if you just calm down and slowly but surely put them together, eventually it will come together. And I found that was a really good way of reminding myself: just chill out, keep keep going forward, keep working, and eventually it'll all it'll all come out in the wash. So it's kind mm-hmm. of therapeutic. There is that sort of trust the process moment <laughs> and then I wanted to ask about your team who is on your on your squad because I think people tend to think of writing as being quite a lonely solitary job until you get into it and you realize how many other people are involved so who is on your squad and how did you find them um well, I'm a little bit of a lonely old girl but yeah I've got um Peter Talak who's my agent at the science factory he's he's great so he is great at listening to me wittering on about mind body things for ages before we suddenly you know I think it was him that said to me yeah movement's really interesting and I'm like, you're right, movement 
really interesting. You know, it kind of gave me something to coalesce the idea around. And so, yeah, to have people like that who are interested and push you on and say, yes, I think there's something in this, keep going, is really important because otherwise you are just at home thinking, is this interesting to anybody else? And I do bore friends and family a lot. And I think if their eyes don't glaze over too much, then I know that I'm onto something. And, you know, movement was one that that really got people talking about. When I wrote about, in my first book, I wrote about the brain. People tend to do, they do tend to glaze over a little bit because they think, ah, the brain, that's terrifying. You must be much cleverer than me. And they don't want to talk about it. Whereas movement, everyone can relate to that and say, yeah, I do this and I found this. And have you read about this person? And so that was a really great way of kind of deciding where I was going to go and what I was going to look into further because everyone had their take on it. So everyone was my team when it came to writing um, about movement. Um, and then, of course, you know, when you've got your editor, um, Ed at Ed Lake at Profile, it's been absolutely brilliant. You know, when I've, I, I have these writerly moments where I just go, oh my God, it's awful. And I don't, you know, he's very good at, you know, saying, it's fine, keep going, you know. So I think it's nice to have people that give you a vote of confidence as you go along. Um, and my US editor, John Glynn, has been the same as well. You know, they're, they're very good at saying, um, yeah, what you're doing is good. It's going to be fine. Um, and also, of course, my husband's brilliant. You know, if he wasn't the one holding down a proper job, I'm not sure I'd be able to do this at all. So, you know, there's a big, there's a big support team and my son's very good he's 11 he likes to tell his classmates his mummy's an author and it's very exciting so when you know the time when I don't feel like an author I feel like a total fraud you know having other people in your corner is really important that is so nice my daughter's four and has decided that she too wants to be an author and she keeps making me books and it's wonderful because she knows that the really important thing is to write her name in big letters on the front. When I was um, doing the kind of the round of the book festivals with my first book, um, my son came along to one of them. He was, I think he was seven at the time and he walked around the festival bookshop and he saw somebody pick up my book and he went over and said, excuse me, my mummy wrote that. That's her over there. <laughs> And it was it was mortifying, um, but it was so sweet. And the, and the lady did buy the book. He was cute. I was like, I need to send you into every bookshop in the land just to do my publicity for me. Very sweet. That is fantastic. <laughs> what are you reading at the moment, Cod? I have recently received my latest copy of The Author Magazine, which I believe you also get from the Society of Authors. Um, yes. And anyone listening to this who is serious about their writing and their practice and isn't a member of the Society of Authors yet, they're not sponsoring us or anything. This is a, this is a heartfelt message, a declaration of respect and admiration with the Society of Authors. They are very good at protecting author rights. You can go to them with any questions about fees, contracts, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the perks of being a member, apart from the fact that you get a card that says author on it, oh, lol. That gets, that gets you a discount in Waterstones. It does. I always forget to use it. And, and at many other bookshops as well, bookshops. Then, uh, not just Waterstones, even the indies, and even the indies, some of them. Ah, brilliant. Um, but yeah, in the latest issue of The Author, there's a, I don't know if you've read it yet, Ben, but there's an article in it by Robert H. Frank, who is one of the economists who developed the winner-take-all theory about how it com competition gets increasingly scarce. The better you're doing, you just rise to the top. And he's written about it in relation to authors and publishing and mm -hmm. kind of examining this idea that examining the process of how some authors just get big straight away 
and they it's like a stone rolling down the hill gathering all the expensive money moss and whereas the other authors are just kind of flinging away in the background and why is that why does why does publishing focus why does it work in that way why is it that one of the quotes i thought was really interesting in this article um he talks about how publishing new works from unknown authors and I'm putting unknown in quotes because it's it seems a bit ridiculous there's so many unknown authors who are known to many people but yeah from the firm's perspective publishing new works is like buying cheap lottery tickets so this idea that publishers just accumulate they're like oh yeah we'll buy yours we'll try a bit of yours we'll buy it see if you know we'll publish your book throw it out see if anybody likes it if they do, great. If they don't, well, we didn't spend much money on you anyway. Mm. And I find found that quite depressing. <laughs> but not surprising. It's certainly up there with the shit I wish I'd known before I became an author. Is that particularly with the larger publishing houses, it is very much a numbers game. Um, I'm really lucky in that I'm published by a fairly indie uh, place and my editor has always been sort of bang on side getting as much promotion and as much activity as possible for both books and there's an amazing publicity team there and I'd sort of taken that for granted until I spoke to other authors who have worked just as hard and have written books that are just as good nay better than swearing is good for you but who just don't have that much love from their publisher and so we really need to do I think a shit I wish I'd known special talking about the ways in which people manage to fight their way to the top of the attention tree uh, if you don't have your publicist working away for you. Because quite often, overnight successes take decades to come. There is no such thing as an overnight success. Uh, but I think a lot of authors are not prepared for just how much work is involved in getting your name known, you know, appearing at all sorts of events. I mean, when swearing came out, I would go to the opening of an envelope. Yeah, and it is amazing how much then... When you start popping up all over the place, someone else will notice you say, oh, I heard you on this podcast or I saw you at this particular festival. And then that leads to another invitation, which leads to another invitation. And these things do, as you say, roll like a stone. You you do gather moss, but it is hard work. It is as hard work as the writing. And until recently, it has been fairly difficult for anyone who wasn't incredibly mobile, who couldn't go on literal book tours. We're kind of excluded from that. You know, if you're Stephen King or Bill Bryson and you can't go on the road for three months every time you bring up out a new book, that's one thing. Uh, if you're new person who isn't necessarily getting paid for these appearances or is getting paid something nominal, that's not a valid, easy choice for you to make. So how about you and me, Cod, we write something, uh, we do an episode on how to get some of that magic moss yourself, how to, how to kickstart your own damn momentum. That sounds good. I like the sound of that. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see because it's a bit of a, an amerta in a way, but it's almost like authors don't want to talk about how hard it is. And, and because it's it's basically putting your hand up and saying, yeah, actually, my publisher was kind of interested in my book, but not interested enough to promote me. So that probably means my book's not that good. Ergo, I'm probably not that good a writer. Hi, nice to meet you. Um, but actually, when you start scratching away at the surface, there are so many authors, even 
the big name authors sometimes who, you know, prize winning national international prize women winning authors who say, well, yeah, actually, I've I've been neglected quite a lot. Nonfic Pod is brought to you by Beatrice Bazell, Emma Byrne, Georgie Cod, and Mike Wire. Modesty, you know, mine was always aimed to be the kind of book that you would sort of dip into next to the toilet, not a life changing herb. You can really help us by rating, reviewing, and sharing non fig pod. Every little helps to build our audience, and that means we get to share fantastic non fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 